0: Friends, it's um, it's been quite a while since I last uh, preached in our Living Theology series. I think Ruben has uh, has brought our last four messages in that for various reasons. But uh, because of that, I thought I would begin tonight with a little bit of a road map of where we have been. We started out in this series asking ourselves that most fundamental of questions: Does God exist? And we saw how he has so clearly revealed himself to all people in the creation that is around us, but also in history and in the human conscience. In theological terms, we call this God's general revelation. But then we went on and asked, can we really know God? And here we moved on to what we call his special revelation, the way that the Lord has has told us about himself right from the beginning, especially in the coming of Jesus and most fully in his word, the Bible. And that led us to spend two more weeks asking ourselves, why is the Bible so great? And with that time, we explored no less than 10 reasons for the greatness of this book of the Bible that we use in our lives and in our preaching every time every day and more most recently we also spent 5 weeks considering together just what it is that god has revealed in his in his word about himself we asked the question what is god really like and here we looked at what theology calls the attributes of god and in that we spent a night Thinking about the fact that he is limitless, the fact that he is all-powerful, the fact that he is all-knowing, the fact that he is holy, and finally, last time, the fact that our God is gracious. So where do we go next? Well, this week, we want to keep developing our understanding of God, but from a slightly different angle. For you see that while we have thought about his revelation and about his attributes, I've got a fair idea that most of the time we've been thinking about the one who we generally refer to as God the Father. But you know as well as I do that when we read our Bible, we cannot help but notice that it also speaks to us of God the Son. And it also speaks to us of God the Holy Spirit. And so we have this intriguing dilemma. We speak of God in the singular, but yet he himself seems to reveal himself to us in the plural. And thus at the very same time we have three, but yet one. And in theology this is what we call the Trinity. And hence tonight we're asking ourselves the question, what exactly is this Trinity? Now right up front, I want to say three quick things. First of all, I want to say that the word Trinity is not found in the Bible. Now because of that, some conclude that it's therefore untrue, that it's a nonsense. They even might say that it's heresy. But of course, that would be very poor logic. I mean, the word Bible isn't found in the Bible either, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. No, my friends, the word Trinity, whilst not in the Bible, yet represents a key biblical truth. And it does that by taking the prefix tri, meaning three, as in triangle or tricycle, and it adds it to the word unity, meaning singular or one. And so the word Trinity quite simply describes the fact that the Lord our God has revealed himself as three, But yet one. And so, if that is indeed biblical, then the term is both helpful and true. The second thing I want to say is that while it's quite easy to say that God is three, but yet one, that does not mean that this concept is easy to explain or to understand. For, I mean, how can anything be both one and three at the same time? How can one plus one plus one equal one? So, whatever else we say, we always need to remember that in the end, this is a mystery. That's why the Belgic Confession in Article 9 says there are three persons in the one and only divine essence. But then it adds this doctrine surpasses human understanding. We need to be as clear as we can on what the Bible teaches us about the Trinity. But then we must accept what we have heard, no more and no less. But thirdly, I also want to say that this concept of the Trinity is just so extremely important. You see, it's at the very heart of our Christian faith. And it's also at the very heart of the Christian gospel. And so those who deny it are not just seeing things a little differently, but they are in fact placing themselves outside of God's truth, and risking their salvation altogether. So as we consider this concept today, we don't just do this because it's interesting or because it's intriguing. We do it because it's valuable and vital. Today we want to understand why this matters so much. And as a result, we want to praise the Lord because he indeed is a triune God. So all of this should now drive us into God's Word, where we want to discover what He Himself really teaches us about the Trinity. And we need to begin with the fact that there is only one true God. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 39, it says this, Acknowledge and take to heart this day that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth below, There is no other. Or we can think of Psalm 86 where it says, For you are great and do marvellous deeds. You alone are God. There's Isaiah chapter 44. It says, This is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. And also in the New Testament. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, so then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. Friends, these passages remind us of a basic truth that permeates the entire Bible the fact that there is only one real God. Scripture, of course, mentions other gods, divinities and idols, but it's abundantly clear that every single one of them is false. They don't exist outside of the imaginations of those who worship them. They are powerless and they are impotent. And the very same goes for the gods of other religions today. People may well trust in them and serve them, but they are actually nothing. They are pretend, they are not real. There is only one true God who is powerful and active and worthy of our praise. So that then speaks clearly against any kind of polytheism, any idea that there are multiple gods to choose from. But my friends, it also speaks against any idea that the Trinity is in fact suggesting that there are three different gods. We may well speak of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, but yet there are not three gods, there is just one. Whatever else we say about this, we can never conclude that there is more than one true God. But then next we need to consider how the Old Testament already reveals that within the Godhead, within the one true God, there is some form of plurality. And we see that right from the start. In Genesis 1 verse 1, we're told that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But then already in verse 2, it says in the Spirit of God... Was hovering over the waters. Already there is some kind of distinction between God and His Spirit. And then a little later in Genesis 1 verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. God here speaks of Himself in the plural, very specifically using the terms us. An hour and in chapter 3 verse 22 we see something similar it says in the Lord God said the man has now become like one of us knowing good and evil a little later in chapter 11 at the Tower of Babel it's uh, God says come let us go down let us go down and confuse their language And then later in Isaiah chapter 6, we find another example. The Lord says, whom shall I send and who will go for us? We can also think of Exodus chapter 3, where we're we're told that the angel of the Lord appeared to him, that is Moses, in the flames of fire from within a bush. But then verse 4 says, God called to him from within the bush. Clearly the angel of the Lord and God himself are closely tied but yet distinct and many see the angel here as an early reference to Jesus. Or you may also know Psalm Psalm 2, a very well-known psalm where the Lord is mentioned over and over again but yet in that same psalm there is reference to his anointed, to his king and to his son. And later revelation tells us that this was already pointing to Jesus Christ. And so, my friends, what this means is that in the very same Old Testament that clearly teaches that there is only one true God, it also teaches us that within the one true God, there are distinct entities, that somehow he is plural. And while there is no specific reference yet to God being three, We can most certainly see in the Old Testament the foreshadowing of the Trinity. But now we go on to the New Testament. And the first thing we want to do is to understand how each member of the Trinity is portrayed as truly and fully God. First there is the Father. Now, no one seriously questions the divinity of the Father, even those who deny the divinity of the Son and the Spirit. I mean, he's often referred to simply as God. And so if he's not God, well, then there's no God at all. But to ground that in Scripture, let's consider, for example, the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6. Jesus teaches us to pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Clearly, the Bible considers the Father as the one true God. But what about Jesus? Well, think about John 1, verses 1 and 2. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning." And in case you you don't know this or you're unsure, verse 14 confirms that when John speaks about the Word, he's speaking about Jesus. And so these verses so very clearly state that Jesus is God. And then there's also John 20 verse 28, where Thomas finally saw and touched the risen Christ. And it says that in response, Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Think also of Romans 9, verse 5, where speaking of the Jews, Paul says, Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, that is, the Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. Or Colossians 2 verse 9, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Or in Titus 2 verse 13, where where he urges us to wait for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. My friends, despite what some may say, despite the strength of their arguments, the Bible clearly, clearly teaches us that Jesus Christ is the one true God. But what of the Holy Spirit? Well, think of Mark chapter 3, where Jesus says, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They're guilty of an eternal sin. We can only ever blaspheme against God. The Holy Spirit is God. Or think of Acts chapter 5, where Peter says, Ananias, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. And then in the very next verse says, you have not lied just to human beings, but to God. Or think of Ephesians 4 verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Or 2 Corinthians chapter 3 Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Clearly, the Bible also teaches us that the Holy Spirit is the one true God. So, my friends, having seen that the Old Testament teaches a plurality in God, and that the New New Testament teaches that not only the Father but also Jesus and the Holy Spirit are portrayed as the one true God, then the question that remains is this. Does the Bible also put the three of them together as the only distinct persons who in fact constitute the being of God? In other words, does the New Testament truly testify that there is one God who eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son and Holy Spirit? Well, I invite you to consider Matthew 3, verses 16 and 17. It says, As soon as Jesus was baptised, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my Son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Here in this one passage we have Jesus the Son, we have the Spirit of God, we have the Father in heaven, all clearly divine but yet distinct and acting independently. Or there's Matthew 28, verse 19, where Jesus said, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name, singular, of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Or there's John 14, where Jesus says, If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever the spirit of truth. And then there's Acts chapter 2 where it says, God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. And you probably are also aware of that Famous benediction in 2 Corinthians 13. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, a passage we looked at in our morning service a few weeks ago, it says we've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ. And finally, in the book of Jude, it says, By praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. My friends, there is an abundance of biblical evidence showing us that even though it is a great mystery that God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are three distinct persons, but yet they are divine and integrally connected and thus together they constitute the one true triune God. And as a result, this, this truth is also strongly reflected in our creeds and our confessions. For example, you may know that the entire Apostles' Creed is is formulated around the Trinity with its three sections, beginning, I believe in God the Father Almighty, and then, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, and then later, I believe in the Holy Spirit. And the Nicene Creed is very similar. And then there is the Athanasian Creed. I don't know what you know about the Athanasian Creed, but, but its whole purpose is to state and defend the doctrine of the Trinity. And so the, near the beginning of that creed, it says that this is the true Christian faith, that we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. And then it goes on to great lengths to explain what that means. The Belgic Confession, it devotes two entire articles to the Trinity. And these begin by saying this, In keeping with this truth, And Word of God, we believe in one God, who is one single essence in whom there are three persons, really, truly, and eternally distinct, according to their incommunicable properties, namely Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Heidelberg Catechism also devotes a Lord's Day to this as well, asking the question: Since there is but one God. Why do you speak of three, Father, Son and Holy Spirit? And it answers, because that is how God has revealed himself in his word. Three distinct persons are one true eternal God. So my friends, we have seen that the Bible clearly teaches the Trinity. And this is reinforced by our creeds and our confessions. But you might be sitting there and wondering to yourself, well, so what? Why does it really matter? Why is it so important? Well, there's, there's quite a few things I could say, but we're going to focus on just two. First of all, without the doctrine of the Trinity, we'd be so much poorer in our understanding of the Lord. On the one hand, this doctrine reminds us that there is... Only one true God. Unlike many of the world's religions, we are not faced with a confusing plethora of of minor deities forced to pick and choose those that might be of benefit to us. We know there is but one true God, one creator, one sustainer, one saviour and Lord of all. But on the other hand, it reminds us that our one true God is not a one-dimensional God. We do not have to fall for the false teachings of, of Unitarians like the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses who say that the Father is God, but the Son and the Spirit are not. We don't need to fall for the false teachings of modalists like certain branches of Pentecostalism who say that there is just one God who basically reveals himself in different ways at different times. Sometimes he comes out as the Father, sometimes he reveals himself as Jesus, sometimes he is the Spirit. Now, my friends, our God is not limited by human ideas like these. He has revealed to us that he is Father, Son and Spirit, All of the time. And that means that Father, Son and Spirit have always existed in a perfect eternal relationship. It means that Father, Son and Spirit have always related to each other in perfect love. It means that Father, Son and Spirit did not create us to fill a lonely void but because they desired to let their perfect love overflow to us. And my friends, it means that Father, Son and Spirit did not redeem us through some external, impassionate act, but rather by an act of incredible, loving, self-sacrifice upon the cross. But secondly... Without the doctrine of the Trinity, we would have no assurance of our salvation. For my friends, while no one seriously denies the divinity of the Father, there are plenty who deny the divinity of the Son. But what would that mean if Jesus were not the true Son of God, not divine? Well, for a start, it would mean that Jesus was a liar and that the Bible's a sham. It would mean that the virgin birth is irrelevant and his miracles are meaningless. It would mean that all of his claims and his promises were nothing more than a sadistic joke. But worst of all, it would mean that he was never actually able to rescue us from our sin. For my friends, if Jesus is not the divine Son of God, then he lacks the very power And the very perfection that was needed to be our atoning sacrifice and our eternal Saviour. For only God, only God can do these things. And in the same way we can ask ourselves, what would it mean if the Spirit were not God? Well, it would mean that he is not actually able to bring us to repentance or to give us true faith, or to empower us to grow in love and obedience, or to comfort us in our time of need, or to keep us safe until the very end. It would mean that God does not live in us as he has promised, and we would be left to face life and death all on our own. And so I hope you can see why this... Well, this doctrine of the Trinity truly does matter. For it is central to our understanding of who our God really is. And it is central to our understanding of how we are really saved. Without it, we are lost. And so I want to encourage you this afternoon, not just to understand the Trinity to the best of our human ability, And I want us not just to believe in the Trinity, as important as that may be, but I want to encourage us to rejoice in the Trinity. For this is how the Lord himself has revealed himself to us. For this is who he truly is. He absolutely is the one true God and there is no other. But yet he eternally exists as three persons, our Father, Jesus our Saviour and the Holy Spirit. In that we begin to discover the richness of our loving God and in that we begin to comprehend the awesomeness of our salvation. Amen. Let's pray.